Currently, we're going through Paul's letter to the Romans. And we're in the 13th chapter. Thank you for preparing our hearts for worship and song. We look forward to hearing from heaven now through the word. Let's pray together as we begin. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity that both Pastor Kent and Mike have to preach your word in other churches. I pray, Lord, that your hand would be upon them and that you would fill them to the uttermost and give them wisdom to preach your word clearly and compassionately. And that would be used of you this morning. We pray the same here for the preaching of your word. And Lord, we, uh, we always miss those who are unable to be here because of health to personally hear God's word preached, but as they listen by way of live stream this morning, we pray for those who are recovering, Dinah and Sue and Mary, and, and certainly Lord, uh, Mr. Jim Knapp, as he recovers from uh, yet another stroke this week. And we pray, Lord, that his heart would be encouraged as, and these ladies' hearts would be encouraged as they watch this morning and join us in worship. Heal them quickly and restore them back to us, Lord. In your time, in Christ's name we pray, amen. Maybe you were fascinated with lightning bugs like I was as a kid, and I remember often, um, we grew up in a little house next to the church here, it's obviously no longer there, but long before this building was here, and the 86 and 2004 edition was here, all this was field, and the whole back parking lot was field, and with tall grasses, three to four feet tall, and I would go out there as a little boy, and uh, in, the, in the dark of night, just be enamored by the hundreds and thousands of lightning bugs. And I would, I would catch them. I would get a jar, I would poke holes in the lid on top of that jar, and I would catch as many as I could. Uh, I think the highest I caught was a little over 100 in one night. And I remember putting them in that jar and taking them to my bedroom and... Uh, putting them on my nightstand next to my bed and making sure the room was as dark as possible and falling to sleep just watching uh, the luminescent yellow light flickering on and off uh, thousands of times. And I was amazed. I was amazed. I, I still am kind of amazed by those little bugs. G.K. Chesterton said this, what is wonderful about childhood is that anything in it is a wonder. It was not only a world full of miracles, it was a miraculous world. You remember childhood being like that, and for some of you that still have children at home, it's, it's wonderful to be amazed by their amazement, isn't it? Amen. As they discover things for the first time and enjoy newer things multiple times. As we continue on, in our study of the practical portion of the book of Romans today, 
Paul talks about the first opportunity we have to observe and enjoy the miraculous world of wonder God has placed us as his children. And as we unpack the truths of verses 3 through 8, I think you'll be amazed. I know you will be. Because you already are, many of you. The foundation of the first section of the practical part of the book of Romans, as we've already studied, is chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I think I told you to turn to Romans 13. I was thinking of our law officer before. It's actually Romans 12. The foundation to the practical part is Romans 12, 1 and 2. But in verses 3 through 8, we, has the, we have the first article or aspect of practical living importance to unpack. So, so think of 12, 1 and 2 as the foundation for the rest of the practical part of the book of Romans, which begins in verse 3, and verses 3 through 8 has the first aspect that we're going to unpack out of this practical suitcase, if you will, and it's a glorious aspect. It's a glorious truth. I want to divide these verses up into three simple points for those of you who like to take notes or who like to remember audibly order. In the first part of verse 3, I'd like to preach this morning and discuss with you the manner of our transformed life in community. The manner of our transformed life in community. That's the first part of verse 3. The second part of verse 3 through verse 5, I would like to preach and discuss with you the measure, not just the manner, but the measure of our transformed life in our community. And in verses 6 through 8, I'd like to preach and discuss with you the method, the method of our transformed life in community. As you folks know, I like to do, I like to take the grammar of the text, the Greek grammar, where we get our English translation from, I like to take that grammar and I like to craft our main points according to the grammar of the text. So when I give you main points, I don't want you to think this is just some type of creative stylistic literary ability that I have. I don't have any of that, okay? I was not a literature major. I was not a, a creative writing major or minor. All I'm trying to do is give to you in these three main headings exactly what the text is saying only in summary form, okay? So really, uh, I was taught in seminary that your people primarily will only remember the main points from the message. And so one seminary professor said, make sure your main points stick out like the ribs on an emaciated man. <laughs> uh, so here we go. Here we go. I don't know why I don't like that analogy, but it stuck out in my mind, probably because of its ugly graphic nature. And I haven't seen my ribs for some time, so maybe I... <laughs> the manner of our transformed life in community. In our community. And when we speak of community here, this is not the community of menor, but the community of God in our local church. What is this manner? Not long ago, I saw a guy wearing a t-shirt 
at a ball game, and it said this, I am a simple person. I like baseball and maybe three people. <laughs> I like baseball and, and maybe three people. And I chuckled out loud, and I think he knew I was chuckling at his t-shirt. And I said, maybe three people? I said, what does maybe three people mean? And he just chuckled. But I thought about that t-shirt in relationship to the first part of verse 3, the manner of our transformed life in community. Let's read Romans chapter 12 and verse 3 together. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. While there is simplicity in the Christian walk with God, it might not be as simple as loving one thing and maybe three people. As we read on here, let's find out how Paul ex explains how we estimate the value of our life and the value of other people's lives through a particular manner of relating with one another. I think the first word of emphasis here is the word grace. Underline that word grace in the text. For through the grace. For those of you who are newer to Christ, I know there's been some that have been saved in here for less than two weeks. The word grace is just help from heaven. And we didn't do anything to earn it. Unmerited favor. Something given to us that we don't deserve. Help from heaven. But now that you know Christ as your Savior... This is what God helps us do in this first portion, or this first aspect of this first portion of the practical book of Romans. God helps us do something. So it's not, if you're walking in the Spirit, we have to understand what we're going to study here, and the whole practical part of the book of Romans is not something you're doing in your own strength. As a matter of fact, if you try to do any portion of this under your own strength, you're not going to persevere very long. I think it's very, very critical for all of us to listen because this is how it goes as a pastor of a, of a great church like Grace Church of Menor. You guys are wonderful people. I would say that well over 90% of you are governed by the Spirit and, and, and you're enjoying community here at Grace Church of Menor. And you're phenomenal people. And I think that's why the Spirit of God's working here. I feel like I'm speaking to a group of Roman believers where for 16 chapters, Paul doesn't level one criticism against these people. These are a healthy group of people, and that's you. Right? But with every 90% of a healthy group of people, there are some who are going to struggle. And those who struggle, if they're saved, this is why they struggle. It's because they thought they could continue to do the Christian life in their own strength. And you know what? When we all try to do the Christian life in our own strength, we wear out really quickly, right? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is what? Yeah, we all know that. I know that probably better than any of you. Well, people over 60 probably know that better than me. Uh, I try to learn from them. But we can't do ministry in our own strength. And we're going we're gonna to continue to sharpen our pencil here and get more and more practical because where Paul starts with this first aspect is critical to the function and the direction of the whole church broadly. So we start narrowly, but if this is not understood and if we don't participate in this aspect of community, uh, we won't pursue the remainder as well. 
So, unmerited favor compels us to do something. For though the grace given to me, Paul says, the writer says, I say to, what's the next word? Everyone. In the New American Standard, right? That's what it says. For through this favor given to me by God that I didn't deserve, this ability, this help from heaven to me, one person, I say to you, everyone, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. This is the manner. But I want you to see the influence of grace here. When one spirit-filled person understands the ability of God's grace to help them maintenance this type of ministry, they will have an influence on many. You say, Pastor Tim, that's the most ridiculously elementary thing. I could have gotten that on my own devotions this morning and never come to church. I know you would never do that because you're here. Don't underestimate, my friends, the influence of one. Don't underestimate your personal influence. When it's God's grace that's compelling you and not your own human strength. I like to say God breaks the bread of our obedience. I like to say don't despise the day of small things. If God could take five loaves and two fish and feed 10,000 mouths, he took a small thing and influenced and helped many. If the Apostle Luke could say in Acts chapter 3 that 12 ordinary men turned the world upside down for Christ, God can take small things, small groups, and influence many. That's what Paul's saying here. And remember, we're just off the doctrinal portion of the book of Romans. The gospel transforms. Jesus changes us. Jesus compels us by his love to live this way. There is grace enough to save us. There's grace enough to sustain us to live like this. And he starts with an attitude. He starts with a great disposition here, doesn't he? And this is how you get to influence people here, and it's very, very clear. One influences everyone dispositionally first. Why? Because we already have the position in salvation in Christ. What is the first dispositional or attitudinal aspect of our lives living in our community when we rest in the position Jesus Christ has given us. Don't think more highly of yourselves than you ought to think. The pronoun here, himself, is really a pronoun that stands for both genders. All of us should not think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. I think back to those lightning bugs and the brilliance of their yellow fluorescent light in the midst of the darkness of night in my room. And, and now I think of you all and the, and the magnificence of your individual light that shines for Christ among us. And each time I'm with you, I'm, I'm really overwhelmed and, and I'm, I'm personally enamored by what God's grace has done in you.
I want you all this morning to look around and be amazed. Christ has transformed you individually by grace and transferred each of you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear light. And it's all by grace. And every one of you shine. (laughs) You shine first among one another. And you are constantly being compelled by God's grace to continue to shine as an individual so that you will affect the whole. Now think about this, folks. Meditate upon it. God's grace compelled you to shine in this community first. Preparation in this community of Grace Church so that you can shine in our community in Northeast Ohio. There's a prep ground here. And it's a dispositional prep ground because we already have a position in the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't think more highly of yourselves than you ought to think. Boy, there's so much in Scripture that talks about humility, isn't there? I mean, this is a phrase we could put one word over it, right? Humility. The Bible says, humble yourselves in 1 Peter 5 under the uh, mighty hand of God, and and he'll exalt you in in, in due time. James tells us that God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Paul tells us in Philippians 2, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as far more important than yourself. Christ being the ultimate example of humility in the same chapter, Paul writes this of Jesus Christ, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. We would call what John called Jesus in 1 John 1, 7. He is light. John 1, he was light that pierced the darkness of our world. Light appeared. When you trust Christ, his light is now yours. And that light demonstrates itself among the company of God's people first. And it does so with a humble disposition. And then we're going to talk about the activity. Because get this, folks, before we get to the, the measure and the method, you have to understand this. Grace compels, if you're truly saved, grace compels a disposition. But then we carry that disposition into our measure of our activity. So, if we're going to understand the rest of the text, we must understand that you're going to have to evaluate your own individual heart on the rest of the text based on this word grace, how it's operating in your life, and what it's compelling you to do. Because remember, this is the first article, or the first aspect of Christian living in this book, so I think Paul puts it here first to show us its preeminent importance in our lives. 
We have all been placed by the grace of God into this community, and by his grace, we not only have a position in this place, but as we've already said, we have a disposition as well, and we should be a humble people. It's interesting, as you study humility in the Bible, in most places, you will see position and disposition. In other words, God has given you a place in Christ and a place in the church to demonstrate humility and he has given you the opportunity to live out that community rubbing shoulders with people in the local church as you serve your humble savior. This is the proper way to estimate your own faith in your own community. Each person influencing the whole with the right disposition. Assuming we have this influence and a proper attitude to go with it, how much influence should you have as an individual? I haven't emphasized this very much in recent sermons, but of all sermons we've preached recently, I would ask you to pretend that you yourself are the only one sitting in the auditorium this morning. Because this gets radically individual. All right? It's clearly personalized, and we all need to take our own particular inventory. What does the Bible say here beginning in the second part of verse 3 about the measure of our transformed life in our community? It says here, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. We looked at that. Be humble. What does humility look like? But you need to think. He's not asking for an inactive mind. He's asking for an active mind. He says, think so as to have sound judgment. And here's the qualifier to define for us what healthy discernment is. Healthy judgment or thinking. As God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Each a measure of faith. Some of you who have taken some classes on in art, and you may be a painter, you may have been uh, told what underpainting is. Underpainting. An artist will take a canvas, which is white due to the jessup that it's covered with, and paint it black. So later when the blues, yellows, whites, and reds are applied, they show more brilliantly. When you look at a painting, that an artist painted with this method, you'll notice in those paintings, I saw some of these paintings recently in the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City, and it's fascinating when you look at the painting, uh, the brilliance of it, but all the colors are necessary. All the colors put together bring up the, com the composite brilliance of the painting and I think French Impressionists, some of the French Impressionists were most excellent at this. But you know what? You'll see a bright magenta paint stroke, and then you'll see a faint yellow paint stroke. When you look at the whole of the picture, it's gorgeous. When you examine its smaller parts... There are some parts that stand out more brilliantly than others, but all are necessary for the beauty of that picture. Paul says here, 
that God has given to each one of us something very certain. And that is a beautiful, essential part to the portrait of the local church. And he compels us by his grace. Remember, that's the word that, that we springboard from this morning. He compels us by his, our grace, whether we're a faint yellow pastel or we're a brilliant magenta. God's grace gave you that ability. You're on the canvas. Without your stroke, it's not as pretty. And actually, incomplete. Ask any artist how many times they've begun a painting and they stopped because they didn't like where it was headed. Their studios will be full of paintings and often they'll keep those unfinished paintings in their studios to regularly remind them of how many times they failed. Because the brilliance of those artists, their failure pushes them to succeed. And they always been able to be reminded how, what not to do, so they're compelled in what to do. God needs every one of us to participate with the particular measure of faith that he's given to us. Now, what in the world does measure of faith mean? I'm going to explain this very quickly. This does not mean that some people here are more saved than others. This word faith in the Bible is used multiple ways. In this particular context, it simply means this. Are you ready? Everyone that's in here that knows Jesus Christ, God gave you a particular spiritual gift. Everyone has at least one. Some may have more than one. But God gave it to you. God gave it to you. That's simply what the measure of faith means. He measured out to you. This, is a, this word measure is a, is, a, is a wonderful Greek term. He particularly fit you with something that another saint could not have been fitted with. You're a specialist. He made you a unique paint stroke in this artwork of the local church. And the church cannot survive well without your influence. And it's all by grace. And so now we go back to the manner. Now we're told why that we're to not esteem ourselves higher than anybody else, but to esteem, to think properly. Because people that have that bright magenta influence, they can get pretty egotistical in the church. Because God gave them many gifts, possibly. But the faint yellow pastel might think, they can do without me. So Paul says, you magenta people, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Remember, everything you have wasn't sourced in you, it's sourced in grace. And for the light yellow pastel, you beautiful little pastels, don't underestimate your influence. So don't overestimate, don't underestimate, but think healthily. God gave you a measure. And this measure exists within an entity. Look with me here as we continue on reading. Verse 4, for just as we have many members, many 
many brushstrokes, if you will, in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we are many, so we who are many, are one body, and what's the prepositional phrase say there? In Christ, sourced in grace, sourced in Christ, we're many all together in him, and individually members of one another. So I would like to say this. This is a unity of measurement, if you will. For you bakers, if you don't want to use an artist's illustration, use a baking illustration. I love baking Christmas cookies every year with my daughter. Uh, I don't mind if my sons join us, but I just have more fun with Emma making Christmas cookies. And, and probably because I cheat a lot and I eat a lot of the dough, and Emma never scolds me for that, but my boys do. So I don't invite boys. They're welcome, but I don't invite them personally to go make cookies because I'm a cookie dough guy, as you can see. We get the measuring cups out, right? You got an eighth of a cup, a quarter of a cup, a half a cup, three quarters of a cup, and a cup. If you're going to make good cookies, you've got to have clean measurements, right? And then you take all those measurements and you dump them in the bowl, you take the mixer, you know the deal. That's the idea here. Many measurements, all God-given, put together, create something scrumptious. And God didn't. But it is a unity in the measurement. It's unity in multiple measurements. Everyone's necessary. Try to bake a good chocolate chip cookie without salt. Try to bake a good chocolate chip cookie without good melted butter. What do you got? Pretty much nothing. It's not even worth eating, right? right? Many measurements put together create something wonderful. It's a unity of measurements. I want us to go back through these verses really quickly here. And I want us to note a word that's mentioned more than once. And I want you to underline it. And I want you to hang on here, because I will finish on time by God's grace. And so you don't have to worry about me going over. I think the last five messages I've heard have only gone over once, and it was only by two minutes. Because I know some of you actually track that. <laughs> All right. Follow with me here. For just as we have many members in one, underline the word body. Please follow with me here. This is so super what God's given to us here. And all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body. Underline that again, in Christ. And individually members of one another. One another here is synonymous with the word body, so you're welcome to underline that if you'd like. Okay. So really, two specifically, and one analytically, a mention of a unit is given to us three times. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that when we're born again, we're all baptized by the Spirit into this body. And 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 is a great text to cross-reference here next to these verses in Romans 12 because it's probably the most pro prolific text in the New Testament that talks about God's gifting you with gifts. 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. 
We get those gifts when we're baptized by the Spirit into one body. Each of us has a critical, luminary, and miraculous participation in this body. You are the divine, flickering, glorious lights of this place because it's all by grace. Our family here is a body, and in this body, we have our community, our position. And in this disposition, we have a, a disposition of humility. Now, now, let's apply why the word body is used here. It's powerful, my friends, when you do a biblical theology. In other words, what the Bible has to say about the body. It's powerful how Paul and why Paul uses this uh, metaphor here, if you will, or this illustration, this physical illustration, to, to bring out a spiritual point, we'll try to draw it to a conclusion and get on to our final point here. The objective conclusion is this then. You are humble. Hang on with me here. You are humble if you serve the body faithfully by grace. And you are arrogant if you don't. So in other words, you're either living life by God's grace or you're not. To be actively serving in the local church is humility. To not be faithful is the opposite. Now hang on with me here because the analogy actually goes deeper. Are you ready? When you serve, you influence the health of the whole. When you don't, you cause its ill health. But my friends, on your own time, study, study why the Lord Jesus Christ looks at you as his own body. You say, sure, we're the bride of Christ, right? Christ is the groom. We are a body that he's put together. But the Lord Jesus Christ, hang on with me here, I'm going to give you a little theology, right? The Lord Jesus Christ's body was sacrificed on a cross so that your physical body could be related to a spiritual body called the church. So if you're not going to serve because of pride, you're actually participating in part of what put Christ's body on the cross. Yes, your arrogance killed him. They're all theologically inextricably linked. They cannot be pulled apart. Grace pulls them together and locks them tight for eternity, spiritually and physically. Think about 1 Corinthians 11, when we sit down and have the Lord's Supper tonight. Paul says, metaphorically, this is my body which is broken for you. And in that context, in 1 Corinthians 11, what's going on? He's actually criticizing the Corinthian believers for their arrogance in their local church because they were coming and participating in the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. So he's actually using an analogy of the body and blood of Christ to convict that body that they should be one, but their sin has made them 
separate from one another, thus separate from fellowship with God. Not relationship, fellowship. And what was at the root of Corinth's sin? It was pride. It was arrogance. They weren't serving well. They were taking advantage of the blessings of what the church could give to them physically while they were saying no to serving the church spiritually. So I would ask a very, very, very small percentage of this congregation this morning. Because I know what it's like for spirit-filled people to get even more convicted than they should be about a specific text, right? If a text talks about giving, right, and, and you preach on that text because the Bible says you have to, it's amazing after church, all the people that are convicted about giving are the givers, and the ones who aren't convicted are the ones that don't give. Right? The people who are walking with the Spirit always feel like they've got to do more and more and more and more. So you're the people I'm not talking to right now. If you want to use this for analogy of your own faith and application, analysis of your own service of the Lord, do it. It's a very small people, and I love the small group of people as equally as I love the larger group of people who are serving faithfully. But hang on, please. Hang on, please. Because God com God's grace compels all of us to shine as bright lights in this community. In the measure of faith he's given to us. Let's wrap up here this morning with the method. The method of our transformed life in our community. I was in Boston recently, and I heard a speech given by a sports writer of the Boston Globe, and he said, the world we live in equally distributes talent, but it does not equally distribute opportunity. And I understand where he's coming from, from a, from a writer's perspective, a professional writer's perspective, and he's probably quite accurate as per his industry. But that's really the antithesis of what Paul's saying here in Romans 12. What Paul's really saying here, the community in which we live as a local church, God has distributed talent to everybody, and everybody has an opportunity Amen. by God's grace. I want you to divide this third and final point up into a few simple words, and then we'll close, okay? This method has a source, this method has a diversity, and this method has a particularity. Remember those things, source, diversity, and particularity. We find all these in verses 6 through 8. We know the source, from the text tells us, is from the grace of God given to us. The diversity of the method in the text, as we've already read, says these gifts differ from one another. So we have a unity in this community, but there is a diversity within this unity. And grace underpins the activity of the parts within the whole. And it's particular in nature. There are four major gift texts in the New Testament. This is one of four. There is no one 
text of those four that gives us a complete list of all the spiritual gifts. One of those four texts, 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11, tells us that all of the gifts are divided up into two major sections, speaking gifts and serving gifts or ministry gifts. So the particulars of this method that are mentioned here, again, are not comprehensive, but for some reason, under inspiration, they're given by the Holy Spirit to Paul to give to the church at Rome. So let's highlight these and we'll close. It says here, there's a gift of prophecy according to the measure of faith. Verse 6, since we have gifts that differ, right, diversity, according to the grace given to us, that's the source, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy, here's the particulars of the method, if prophecy according to the proportion of his faith, that's very, very similar to what we saw in measure of faith earlier, if service in the serving, or he who teaches in the teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. So as we head to a conclusion this morning, let's examine very quickly the particulars of what's being said here. The gift of prophecy. This is a gift given to those men who wrote the Bible. And they fulfilled their role accordingly, and the measure of their faith is now complete because we have the whole of scriptures. Amen? Amen. When Paul writes to the Roman believers, though, the Bible was not complete yet. But now that it is, the gift of prophecy refers to those who were participating in writing the scriptures. And often they would speak. Prophecy gives us the understanding of verbalizing inspiration. But you have to understand, they're inspired by the Spirit of God. They speak, and a number of the writers of scripture had amanuensis, right? As they spoke, others wrote. So it was a verbal gift, but now that the Bible's complete, praise God for that. Prophecy has ceased. What about service? There are three different ways authors uh, define the word service here. If serving in his service, it could mean overall service of everyone in the church. It could mean that you in particular have been given the gift of helps. And it could specifically apply to, and this is unique. I don't know if I necessarily agree with it, but you can contemplate it if you want. It could imply that the word deacon, because this is the Greek word diakonos, the root word's diakonos, a noun form, which we get our English word deacon, it could actually refer, some agree to disagree, that the office of deacon is actually a spiritual gift. Let me tell you what I feel the best theological analysis and application of this. If you have the gift of helps, because this word diakonos means anything or anywhere, it's a very broad word, that you seek to serve the physical or the financial aspects of the church and God specialized you to do it, Serve well. And the grammar here is, in serving, serve well. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a present, it's a present tense. You're always serving. Whatever God has gifted you to do by way of the gift of helps, do it humbly, according to the measure of faith that he's given to you. Teaching. 
or he who teaches in his teaching. Alva J. McLean said that teaching is the art of making the unchanging divine message understandable to the unlearned. Isn't that a wonderful, mess, a wonderful definition? And not everyone can do that. Teaching is the art, the specialized art of making the unchanging divine message of Scripture understandable to the unlearned. And, and boy, we're always looking and trying to develop those who have been gifted by God to teach. Exhorting, or one who exhorts in his exhortation. This is the Greek word. It's not what you would think for some of you that know your Bibles well because you've taken a few GLBI classes. And, and by the way, the goal is for everyone to take a GLBI class once a year. Remember that. So we need about 600 students a year at GLBI. Plug, plug. Right. Exhorting is not the typical word that you would think for exhorting. This is parakaleo. It simply means someone who's a specialist at comforting someone by, who's hurting by calling them alongside. It's a Greek word. Para is alongside. Kaleo is to call Call them alongside, but then to use the scriptures, even though you don't have the gift of teaching, to, in a unique way, a specialized way, encourage someone who's faint-hearted or growing weaker in their faith. Some of you are uniquely gifted by God to do that, and so many of you are doing these things. Giving. He who gives with liberality. This word liberality is a much misunderstood word in the context of Scripture. It's the Greek word hoplotes, for those of you that like Greek. I don't usually use Greek words in the pulpit because it's not a Greek class, it's a sermon, but it's the Greek word hoplotes, and it suggests this, a single attitude with the absence of ulterior motive or any string attached to why you're giving. This is a special, this is a, this is a unique gift like the rest. God makes you a specialist but when you give, this is what the idea means, to give and to give liberally or with liberality. Okay? The idea is this, when any of us practice our gift, whether it be exhortation or teaching or giving or whatever, when we're practicing that gift, we're not thinking about anyone else in relationship to the practice of our gift. We're just doing it because the grace of God compels us to do this. No strings attached. No nothing. This is just what we're going to do because God's asked us to do it according to the measure of faith because grace compels us to do that. Amen. Leading. He who leads, do it with Diligent. The word leading here in the other parts of the New Testament is a word that's translated ruling. Ruling. And I will just tell you because of time, this is exactly what it means. Study it out on your own time, right? The Bible says in Hebrews 13, 17, to, to make sure you submit yourselves to them who rule over you because they watch for your souls. In 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 12 to 14, those healthy group of believers in Thessalonica were really good at ministering up to those who ruled over them, and, and they, were, they were good at getting to know them for their work's sake. Titus chapter 1 and 1 Timothy 3 give us qualifications uh, that need to uh, be obvious in the lives, lived out in the lives of rulers. But he says to the pastor teachers here, that's who the rulers are. That's a very specific group of people, just like your group of giftedness could be specific. But to me and to Pastor Steve 
and to Pastor Kent and to Pastor Mike and to Pastor Hobbes and other elders that may be gifted with the pastor-teacher gift, you rule with diligence. Be careful. Be careful. Always, pastors, and the idea is here, with diligence, don't overestimate your ability don't underestimate your ability and always maintenance it with the gift, the disposition of humility. Again, those three reminders are applied to each of us in these aspects of gifting. And he finally mentions mercy. He who shows mercy, do it with what? Cheerfulness. Now, why would he tell the people with the gift of mercy to have this disposition? Let me tell you why. I call the people with the gift of mercy bleeders. They bleed, and they bleed, and they bleed. They walk into a back of the room, and all they see is hurting people. How much blood can you lose before your body gets exhausted? There's something about this gift of mercy where Paul gives this exhortation. Continue to be merciful. You're a specialist at it. But there's something about merciful people that have a tendency to get a little grumpy. Because after a while, you're giving of yourself and giving and giving and giving of yourself to encourage somebody else. You can spend so much time doing that, you haven't been spending much time in the Word and refreshing your own heart and being encouraged by others, and all of a sudden you feel like a doormat rather than a minister. So, according to the measure, according to the degree of the gift that you got, do it, but do so cheerfully. And if you're not cheerful and you have the gift of mercy, maybe it's time to back up a little bit and take a time out and refresh yourself in the Lord, and then get back into it. Albert J. McLean says this as we close. When God has called a person and given them a gift, he is not to do something other than that for which God has gifted him. Now, he's speaking in reference to the context of this commentary. He's saying, if you've been given a particular gift, don't start longing for someone else's gift that you don't have. That's what he's saying. He's not saying quit every other part of ministry if you're not gifted in it. As a matter of fact, we know that we're all supposed to be participating in this community in multiple aspects of ministry, even though we're particularly specialized to, to minister in one or two or more. Okay? But he gets critical with what he said. Think of this. All of our hearts are crushed when we hear of a pastor falling into sexual immorality or running from his call to preach, uh, chasing the riches of this world. We grieve and we agonize. Why? Why do we agonize so much when one person with one gift jettisons their divine responsibility and opportunity? Why would we not grieve the same way over someone that has other gifts that doesn't faithfully, by God's grace, minister those gifts to the glorious community in which God's given him and placed him in. Do you remember the lightning bug illustration? 
Are you fascinated by the lights of God here? Are you enamored by the lights of God here? If your disposition is to be quickly disenamored, I would encourage you to know grace a little bit more, to know Christ a little bit more effectually, and then to re-enter with a corrected heart and just be amazed at what God's doing here. This is miraculous light to the person. Every time we're together, we walk on holy ground. This is transformed light. That's why we say this is the best place in the world on the best day of the week. And we don't say that just to sell the church. You are what God has done and is doing. And praise God for that. And because so many of you are doing it so well and so faithfully, God's honored you yet again. And he's placed upon you even greater responsibility now. And God only gives greater responsibility to those who are responsible. We won the bid for the land. Now let me tell you why I didn't start with that. (laughs) Based on the content of the sermon, do you know why now? For those who have been responsible, God gives greater responsibility. For the very small percentage that have not been enjoying, enjoying the miraculous, luminary, little lights around this place, I invite you to start being enamored and encouraged. God's grace is omnipotent. It's transformational. It's changing each of you into the likeness of Jesus Christ unto a greater opportunity to have a gospel presence in Northeast Ohio. It's not official till tomorrow night's board meeting with Lake Tran. So we'll temper our excitement until then. But we've been told we won. God won. There's a manner. It's humility. There's a measure. Every paint stroke. Beautifully necessary. And there's a method. It's particular. Enjoy the grace of God to live out your giftedness faithfully with joy. And let's see what God will do. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we love you. We thank you for the way that the practical part of this book begins. We're all compelled to do the will of God by being transformed. And and this is the first aspect of enjoying and doing that will. Right here in the community that grace has provided us inside our community of Mentor in Northeast Ohio. Continue by your grace to grow us and to use us for Christ's sake and for your explicit glory. In our Savior's name we pray. Amen.